evening is Psalm 16. We've got three. We're going to be uh, preaching the sermon here based on each of these texts. Uh, Not the entirety of Psalm 16, just verse 11. Uh, But we're going to read the whole of Psalm 16, and then Philippians 4, and then in Revelation 21. So Psalm 16, first of all, it's page 624 in the Church Bible. We read this psalm last Lord's Day evening, uh, but we're going to read it again uh, because it's still very fitting for the, the topic that we have this evening. So, Psalm 16. Loved ones, this is the very Word of God. Let's listen to it as such. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And our next text is Philippians 4.4. Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. And then over to Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray his blessing on us now. Lord, uh, we look to you once again. We come empty, praying you'd fill us. We come as beggars, praying you'd feed us. Christ, again, teach us what we need to know to trust you, and to live well before you. This we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. 
continuing on in this series in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and uh, we're still on question and answer one. Last Lord's Day, we looked at the first part of the answer to the question, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God. That's what we looked at last week. The glory of God is the absolute, ultimate purpose of everything that exists, including man, including us. Our purpose is to bring him fame, honor, and glory. But that's not all the purpose that we have. The second half there is what we're going to take up tonight. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So, true or false? God wants you to be happy. And it's your duty to be as happy as you can be. True or false? It's your duty to be as happy as you can be. It's your duty to pursue happiness with everything you've got. Interesting question. Um, At first, you might say, well, that's false. It's our duty to be holy first. It's It's our duty not to pursue happiness, but to pursue God's glory. I'd say that's right. That's true. We might say, well, our, our, our purpose is to do the right thing even if it makes us miserable sometimes. Also true. But, right, we, we look at the question and answer here. It says, it says uh, your chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So it would follow that if our duty is to glorify God, it's also our duty, an imperative, a command to enjoy Him to pursue our joy in God is a command that we must obey and we must listen to. If we're just glorifying Him out of duty with no joy in it, is He pleased? All right, if, my, if my child, I tell him to go clean his room and he, he, he stomps up the stairs. This never happens in our home, by the way. But if he, he stomps up the stairs, goes in his room, and he, he cleans his room, but, but there's an attitude. Right? He's doing his duty. But there's no joy in the obedience. So the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him. And those aren't two separate things. Those aren't, it doesn't say what are man's chief ends. Two chief ends. No, one chief end. The same chief end. The same purpose. These are two aspects of it. Two sides of the same coin. Two strands of the same rope. They're intimately intertwined. So the, the, the quiz, the, the right answer, I think, would be true. It's our duty to seek our joy. Not, not a cheap, temporary, hedonistic happiness, but our joy in God. God has designed us for this. God has made us for joy. He's made us to be delighted in Him. Our chief end is to find happiness in that which is most uh, fulfilling and satisfying and joy-giving, right? Uh, this is how we glorify God, by enjoying Him. John Piper famously says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. How do we bring God glory? We bring Him glory by enjoying Him, delighting in Him, worshiping Him, loving Him. That's our duty. C.S. Lewis, as another writer who interacted with this idea, he preached a sermon called The Weight of Glory. Um, and in his sermon, he, he, he makes the point that the problem is not that our desires are too strong. He says that the problem is actually 
Our desires are too weak. Our problem is not that we want joy too much, but that we want it too little. Lewis says this, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud, mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased, says Lewis. The Catechism Q&A 1 says, don't be easily pleased. Seek your joy in God, in Him alone. And, and if you think about it, right, there, it's interesting that the divines start the Catechism this way. It makes sense. This is our chief end, biblically, which I think it is. We saw last week some texts supporting it, and we're going to see more tonight. But... But what are the implications for this? It means that everything that the rest of the shorter catechism, the the next 106 questions are going to be about, is driving this purpose, right? All the rest of it, about who God is and about creation and His covenant and redemption and and how we are to respond to Him and and obedience. And the the whole system of our doctrine is driving the glory of God and our enjoyment in Him. It's a marvelous thing. The glory of God and our joy in that glory is the goal. It's the goal of our salvation. It's the goal of of every part of our salvation. John Piper, again, he's written a lot on this. Uh, He has a book called Let the Nations Be Glad. And he's talking there about missions and the purpose of missions to glorify God and spread the joy of God, uh, the joy of people in God. Um, But he makes the point there that missions isn't about missions. Missions is about worship. Worship is ultimate, not missions. And I'm going to read his quote. It's a little bit long, but I'm going to read it. But what I, what I'm, what I appreciate about this quote is how he puts the purpose of joy and the glory of God, worship, front and center. And he does it with missions. We can do it with every facet of, the, uh, of our doctrine. He says this, Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is... Mission exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It's a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. He says it about missions. We could say it about other aspects of our salvation, right? We glory in our justification, for example. But justification, that you know, that I've been made right with God by the grace of God shown me in Christ, Christ's work, giving me His righteousness, taking my sin in the great exchange. The glorious doctrine of justification is about, you know, it's, it's driving worship and adoration of God. So this is, this, is the, this is the point. This is what we are made for, to pursue our joy in the glory of God. All right, so here's the goal of the sermon, uh, to encourage you and persuade you that you were made for joy in God, and to encourage you, challenge you to seek that more and more through Jesus Christ. So three texts that we'll, that we'll look at together. Psalm 16, verse 11, then Philippians 4, 4, 
then Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Each of these three are proof texts that the Westminster divines actually put with this question and answer to the catechism. So after the divines had finished their catechism, they were asked to go back and put in footnotes with scripture texts backing up everything they'd said. So they went in, they did it, and um, you can get a copy of the catechism that has these in it. And these are three of the proof texts they gave for this section of the question and answer to enjoy God forever. So those are, that's the reason I chose these three. So three texts, but here's where it gets confusing. Four headings. Um, four headings. Two from Psalm 16, and then one each from Philippians and Revelation. Here's our first heading. The place of joy. So we're looking at Psalm 16, verse 11 here. The place of joy. Listen to Psalm 16, 11. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The place of joy. Where is joy found? Where does Psalm 16, 11 tell us? It says it crystal clear. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's where joy is found, in God's presence. David's writing this. What's on his mind as he writes this? As he thinks about God's presence, what's on his mind? Well, David's actually writing this psalm. Uh, It sounds like the kind of psalm that's kind of on a mountaintop experience, you know, kind of a spiritual high. But if you look back at the start of the psalm, verse 1, the psalm actually begins as a cry for deliverance. He's asking God to save him. He's in deadly danger. He says, preserve me, O God. He cries out to God. Perhaps he's hiding from Saul's army. He's on the run from Saul. He's hiding in a cave. Uh, uh, he doesn't know where the next day is going to hold. And he's, he's pleading with God to preserve him. Maybe he's facing a battle with the Philistines. Whatever the situation is, he knows there's some kind of danger that he's in. And, and this is his hope. God, guard me. He prays in verse 1. But that's where, that's where the psalm starts. But then it goes, you know, by the time he gets to verse 11, he has worked through the, the riches of all that God has given him and all that God is for him, and he comes to this great hope of that God won't let his body see corruption, he won't let his body decay, he won't let him see death. And he gets to verse 11, and here's where the whole psalm is driving. Where is fullness of joy found? In the presence of of God. So as David ends the song, his heart is filled with joy in God. His joy is fixed on the presence of God, on God being with him and him being with God. That's where joy is, with God. As he thinks, as he, as he thinks about that, what's on his mind? Well, I'm sure the Lord is uh, uh, giving David a sense of his presence there in that moment, wherever he is in this situation of danger. The Lord is spiritually there with him to, to uh, give him joy, even in the midst of danger. But David's probably thinking most of all about the tabernacle. Uh, that's the literal dwelling place of God, where God meets with his people, tabernacles with his people, dwells with them. Um, back in Exodus, that's where God's glory comes down. You literally see a cloud of glory descend on the tabernacle, and that says this is where God is dwelling with man. It's filled with his glory. That's probably on David's mind as he's thinking about the presence of God. He's thinking about the joy he has as he enters the tabernacle to worship God. But he probably has more in mind than just the tabernacle. 
He's probably also thinking about the heavenly dwelling place of God. Because that's what the tabernacle is. It's a reflection of the heavenly dwelling place of God, the heavenly temple where God is. And I think that's really where David's mind, most of all, is going. Exodus 25, verse 40, speaks of how um, Moses was copying uh, from what he'd seen, uh, this, this vision of the temple in heaven, and he's, he's copying, he's giving an earthly replica in the, in the earthly tabernacle. And so here's, here's David. He's, he's, his mind is drawn to the presence of God in heaven most of all. What's the connection between uh, joy in God's presence then and this heavenly temple that is on David's mind? Right, as, he thinks about, as he thinks about the joy that is full, he thinks about the heavenly dwelling place of God. As David sits there, this is, on his, this is on his mind. As he's wondering about the danger he's facing, this is on his mind, the, the heavenly dwelling place of God and the joy that's there with him. Uh, think, think back with me to the creation of Adam because this is, uh, these are kind of the roots of, of, of this idea. So God creates Adam and Eve in his image and he makes them for joy in his presence. Right? And he makes Eden as a little replica of his heavenly dwelling place. And he, he calls Adam to, to obey him, glorify him, and enjoy him. And if Adam obeys perfectly, then he'll, he'll go on to perfect joy in the presence of God forever. If he disobeys, he'll be cast out of God's presence without that joy. Of course, Adam disobeys. Uh, and so, so the goal that man is made for, of going into God's heavenly presence and enjoying God in his heavenly dwelling place, that's lost. How do, we, how do we then get into that heavenly dwelling place? Well, God makes a covenant of grace. He makes this covenant of grace in Genesis 3.15. He, he, he uh, moves it into a new dispensation with Moses. Right? And he's, he's making these, these earthly, you know, these shadows of ways that we, we come into his presence, these replicas of the reality. But then, of course, it's in Christ, isn't it? That, that we finally have heaven opened, the way to joy in the presence of God that we were made for opened back up again. Jesus is the second Adam who, who opens the, the dwelling place of God to us by his obedience. What is this joy? So this joy is, the, is in the presence of God in his heavenly dwelling place that Jesus opens for us. What is this joy like? It's found in God, found in God alone. What's it like? It's our second heading here, the measure of joy. We're still in Psalm 16, verse 11, by the way. The measure of joy. What is this joy in the heavenly dwelling place of God like? David uses two words to describe it here. First, he says it's full. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. Think about that concept of fullness. What's it mean for something to be full? Well, we know what it feels like to be full after a meal, or we see the car's gas tank is full. It's, it's when there's no more room for anything else. When it's absolutely maxed out, the capacity is as full as it can be. John Piper comments on this verse. Uh, he says, you can't be fuller than full. Right? This is as full as you can be, and, and uh, it's an obvious point, but I think it's, it's what we need to hear, that what, what David is saying is that in God's presence is the fullest amount of joy possible. The maximum amount we can hold 
We cannot contain more joy than we, than we have in the presence of God. The psalm doesn't tell us when we experience this fullness of joy. Uh, it puts it in the present tense for us there. You'll see it says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. Does David mean, in God's presence I will experience the fullness of joy? Um, it, could, it could mean that. I think, I think he's holding both things together. He, he has a foretaste of this joy in God, this full joy. He has a taste of it now, and he's longing for the time when he enters the heavenly temple of God and there tastes it to the full experiences it to the full. But brothers and sisters, what I, want to, what I want to say here is that there is no other joy that can fill us. This is the joy we were made for, to be filled with joy in God, in His presence. And there's no earthly joy that can compete with that. Every other earthly joy fails to satisfy, leaves us feeling empty at the end. Only God can fill us with joy. Right? We were made for infinite joy. Right? For an infinite God. To delight in an infinite God. So finite created things aren't going to satisfy. If someone were to look at our lives, look at your life, where they say, yeah, that's someone who's living for fullness of joy in God. Or where they see you filling yourself on other joys and treating them as ultimate and, and treating them as the thing that will satisfy your soul. So fullness of joy is found in God. But that's, that's not all the measure of joy there is. The psalm goes on. So this joy is full. It gives us the volume measurement, if you will. It also gives us the length of this joy, the duration of this joy. Verse 11 goes on, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So this joy is full and it's forever. This is a joy that lasts and lasts and lasts. As long as God lasts, this joy will last. And again, there's nothing else like this, is there? Right? There's no joy that lasts like this one does, like this joy in God. Every other joy fades with time. But this joy does, and it strengthens and sweetens and increases over the whole course of eternity. Joy in God. Right, like, a, like think of a, a good marriage that's gone on for 50, 60 years. And, and the people in that marriage, the husband and wife, understand each other and love each other more and more, and, and the, the, their, their marriage sweetens and sweetens. But then at some point, it, it, it's over. That's a picture of our relationship with the Lord, but the relationship with the Lord goes on, unending, only increasing in joy. There's no shadow of grief, loss, parting that can touch our relationship with the Lord and the joy we have in Him. So, Psalm 16:11 says, this is the measure of the joy that's found in God's presence. It's full and it lasts forever. And there is nothing that can compete with that. In light of this, let's turn now to Philippians 4, verse 4. And our third heading here, which is the fight for joy, or the imperative of joy. Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. So Paul says, imperative, command, be joyful. 
Uh, It's interesting, isn't it, that he commands joy? We don't usually think of emotions as something that you can command, but he does here. He says, be joyful, rejoice. It's so important to him, he says it twice. He underlines it. It's not an optional side effect of the Christian life. It's the main thing. Joy in the Lord. He isn't commanding this joy in itself. He isn't commanding joy in other things. He's commanding joy in the Lord. He also isn't commanding this joy only when we feel like it. Perhaps he's really commanding it most of all when we don't feel like it. When we are not having a spiritual mountaintop experience. Rejoice in the Lord always, he says. Really, Paul? Always? You know, when I lose a night's sleep again? Or when when, when the country seems to be in chaos when, when I'm seeing what I'm seeing on the news, uh, when, when I have this, this own issue in, in my life, when I'm going through this tragedy, Paul, rejoice always. There are no footnotes to this command that give an exception to it. Rejoice in the Lord always. What this shows us, loved ones, is that this, you know, the, the, the first question and answer to the catechism can sound like a a great grand thing, kind of abstract. Our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But Paul, as he writes here in Philippians 4.4, commanding our joy in God, is really bringing it down to earth for us. This is not an abstract idea. This, this hits the, 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 uh, the, the heart of daily uh, difficulty, daily life. This is, our, this is our daily duty to fight for joy in God. To, to not just do this with our, our, our lips, not just do this outwardly, but, but from our hearts to strive for joy in the Lord. Paul himself knew this well, didn't he? I mean, he's gone through, he's gone through more than any of us have gone through. Uh, he suffered much. He, he's actually in prison as he writes these words to the Philippians. He's, he's suffering. He's continuing to suffer. He's going to end up being a martyr for Christ. But he keeps on rejoicing, doesn't he? He goes on in Philippians 4 in a few verses, verses, um, uh, verses 11 to 13, he goes on and talks about this, about how he's been strengthened for this. He says this, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer want. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul knew the hunger and the want and the, uh, the, the danger. And he learned to be content in it and rejoice in it. He also learned not to let the plenty, the seasons of abundance and good, not to let those stifle his joy and contentment in the Lord either. He's learned by the strength of Christ in him to continue rejoicing always in the Lord. Loved ones, this is where our chief end becomes more than a nice idea from the first question and answer here of the Shorter Catechism. This is the daily duty that we must be applying ourselves to. This is, this is, this is kind of the heart of our fight for holiness and sanctification. We should be striving, praying for joy in God. There's a little book, a little old book called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. 
All right, and that's that's uh, that's the idea, right? That we have we have to uh, love God and enjoy Him more than uh, more than our sin in order for sin to be driven out. What do we do when we feel lack of joy in God? Little interest in reading His Word, bored uh, of the idea of going to church, uh, little desire to obey Him, to seek Him. Well, first we need to confess it to Him. Not just confess our, our, our outward failings, but the failings of our affections to enjoy Him, who is most to be delighted in. Confess that to Him. Right? Consider God and all He is and all He's done. How could we not be enjoying Him and delighting Him? Our hearts are so cold. We need to confess that to Him. We need to pray that, that He Himself will change our hearts, give us a, 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 an appetite for Him, and a delight in Him. We also need to take a good look at ourselves and cut off those things which are uh, inhibiting our joy in God. As I was thinking over this, um, Marie Kondo came to mind. I don't know if you're familiar with her. Uh, she has a Netflix show called Tidying Up with Marie Kondo. And she goes around, she goes into people's homes, and she helps them tidy up all their clutter, get rid of stuff, basically, and then tidy up what's left. And, and her motto is, if it doesn't spark joy, get rid of it. Uh, and, and so she has these people go through their clothes closets. Does it spark joy? If yes, keep it. If no, toss it. Um, and as I was thinking of this, I was thinking, you know, there's, there's an element there, right, in our spiritual life. Is this, is this not sparking joy, right? Uh, so that's a trivial way to put it. Uh, we're not here to just do what feels good. But, but is, 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 is everything in my life serving my joy in God? If it's not, it needs to go, doesn't it, right? Distractions? Are there distractions that need to go? Good things that have become too important to me that need to, that need to go maybe for a time. Sins that need to go. Priorities that are disordered. Remember, it's an imperative a command to rejoice in the Lord. So let me encourage you in that, loved ones. But the struggle for joy, the fight to obey this command for joy in the Lord, to wrestle our hearts by God's Word, by His Spirit, to wrestle our hearts over and over, day by day, to enjoy the Lord again, um, that struggle is not going to last. We're going to find finally one day that we're resting in joy, in God. And that's where we turn in our final heading, the consummation of joy. And we look at our final text here, Revelation 21, 1 through 4, the consummation of joy. There's a lot we can say about these words here, isn't there? In Revelation 21, 1 through 4. They're rich words. Uh, we heard Pastor Goldstrom preaching them not too long ago. Um, but I just want to point out a couple things that have to bear on our, on our topic this evening. First, notice that the goal of all things is the consummation of the covenant. We talked a little bit earlier in the sermon about how God makes the covenant with Adam, and Adam's job is to obey, and once he obeys, he'll go on to reach joy in God and God's presence forever. Adam disobeys. All right, so that's when that door is closed. Adam's kicked out of the garden and the, and, and the angels are there guarding the way to the tree of life, to the consummation, the, the enjoyment of God. 
But here in Revelation 21, we're at the opposite end of the Bible, and here we finally see the great consummation of joy realized. This is the, uh, this is the moment that all history has been waiting for in Revelation 21. This is, um, this is the plot of Scripture, isn't it? This is the whole storyline of Scripture. How does, how does a holy God get a, get, get a sinful people to Himself to glorify and enjoy Him without consuming them by His wrath? How does, he, how does he, this holy God save sinners and bring them to Himself and have covenant fellowship with them? That's the story of Scripture. And here in Revelation 21, we see that day when, when the church of God comes in like a bride adorned for her husband and meets with God and, and God dwells with her. How does this happen? How, how is this possible? We already touched on this, but it's, it's all depending on Christ, isn't it? He gave His life for us. He perfectly enjoyed God, perfectly obeyed that command, perfectly fulfilled this chief end for every time we failed to. And that's counted to us. And that's how we can come into God's presence, be righteous in Jesus, not ourselves. And that's what we see here, this consummation then of this covenant that Jesus has worked for us. This, uh, this promise here goes all the way back to Leviticus all the way back to Leviticus 26, verses 11 and 12. It says this, I will make my dwelling among you. My soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. Leviticus 26 promised that. All the way back with the covenant with Moses. And Revelation 21.3 is saying, that day is finally here in all its fullness. What does this have to do with man's chief end? Why would the Westminster Divines cite this as a proof text for why our purpose is to enjoy God. Well, we see in this text that it's telling us about the consummation of the covenant, about reaching that day when we come into God's presence. Verse 4 brings this out uh, for us. It says, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. The, the, the author here, John is telling us what won't be there. And by doing that, he's giving us a wonderful picture of what will be there. There will be no death, no sorrow, no tears. It will all be perfect joy in the presence of God. Not a cheap happiness. We sang, we sang of this hope earlier in the hymn, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, these wonderful words. Solid joys and lasting treasure the hymn says. That's what we are looking forward to here in Revelation 21. Solid joys. Lasting treasure. This is, this is what God is bringing us to. Joy in God's presence. Loved ones, can you comprehend the goodness of the promise there in Revelation 21? Think about the, the perfect joy that will be ours there in God's presence. The marriage supper of the Lamb. I think the divines put this text here because this is the this is the sum this is the this is the end right this is this is the goal that we're that we're working towards now right as we struggle day by day to grow in enjoying God now it's with our eyes fixed on this reality when the struggle's done the fight's done and we're there with God enjoying Him perfectly forever so keep that goal before you loved ones 
Uh, wherever you are, whatever you are going through now, however easy it might be, however hard it might be, keep your eyes on the reward of joy in God that we see there in Revelation 21. If there's a cross you're carrying now, bear it patiently. Bear it joyfully as you wait for that. Uh, if, if, if things are going really well, watch out for the temptation to make the temporary pleasures, the fleeting pleasures, to make them ultimate. Don't, don't let them stifle your desires for God. Keep your heart's hope resting in the joy that's coming. It is coming, loved ones. It cannot be stopped. Uh, Christ has risen. He's ascended. He will come again. It cannot be stopped. God has promised us this. Let's pray. Lord our God, thank you for the glorious hope of your gospel and your word. Help us to lay it to heart. Help us to uh, seek our greatest joy in you. Help us to fulfill your command to do this. Help us to rest in Christ and his perfect work for us. Help us to strive on with our eyes fixed on the day when we will perfectly enjoy you forever and ever. And Father, as this, as this earthly Sabbath comes to a close, uh, we, we pray that you would uh, refresh us with the hope of the Sabbath that will never end. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.